Time is getting shorter and there's not much for you to do. Only ask and you will get what you are needing. The rest is up to you. Plant your love and let it grow. Let it grow, let it grow, let it blossom, let it flow. In the sun, the rain, the snow, love us lovely, let it grow, sings Eric Clapton. Why Clapton? We hear at Solutions Balance and our guest today, Peter Coleman, believe there is an answer to both our environmental problems as well as issues in terms of resolving conflict without violence. The answer has to do with love, love for the earth and love for humanity. Folks, you are listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. We are delighted you can join us again today as we talk with our guest, Peter Coleman. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your host for Solutions to Balance, a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational program. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Again, our guest today is Dr. Peter Coleman, and he is professor of psychology at Columbia University in New York City. Welcome to Solutions to Violence, Dr. Coleman. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. As professor of psychology and education at Columbia, Dr. Coleman holds a joint appointment at Teachers College and the Earth Institute and teaches courses in conflict resolution, social psychology, and social science research. Dr. Coleman is director of the Morton Deutsche International Center of Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. He currently conducts research on optimality of motivation dynamics in conflict, power asymmetries and conflict, intractable conflict, multicultural conflict, justice and conflict, environmental conflict, mediation dynamics, and sustainable peace. He has authored over 100 articles and chapters in books, is a member of the United Nations Mediation Support Unit Academic Advisory Council and is a founding board member of the Lehman Toey Peace Foundation USA and is a New York State certified mediator. Dr. Coleman, we've shared a bit about your professional history and we'd like to tell you a little bit about the uh, Coleman uh, story and, and what brought you to the work of conflict resolution. Well, I guess if I go back to my childhood, I was raised in Chicago in the 1960s. 60s at a time of a lot of tumult. There was, you know, there were protests in the streets. There were, you know, the, the Democratic Convention was there in 1968. Martin Luther King was there organizing nonviolence. So there was a lot happening in the city, in the world, but I was much more aware in the city as a kid. And I think that sort of fostered in me a, a sense of what we call macro worry, a sense of the world uh, being a, a volatile place. But fast forward ahead, I, I got directly involved in this work when I was working in psychiatric hospitals with adolescents, which were 12 to 28 year old uh, young people. Many of them had drug problems, had uh, checked themselves in in order to reduce sentences uh, on crimes that they'd committed or were, you know, uh, people had said they had committed. And so it was a violent population that I was working with. And I did this for a couple of years and became interested in violence as a system, not just as it's housed in individuals, but, you know, you could work with these young people and then they would go back to their neighborhoods and homes and friend groups and ultimately end up coming back or going to jail. So it was clear to me that the problem of violence, youth violence, um, was a broader systemic problem. So I became interested in that and 
started to read on it and found, identified this man, Morton Deutsch, who was a uh, eminent scholar and theorist in both conflict resolution, social justice, and peace. He was a, you know, experimental social psychologist, but a theorist and a brilliant man and a very kind and wise man. And so I found him at Columbia and went to work with him. And I've really been there ever since. Yeah, thank you. you. You joined the Earth Institute in 2009 as the uh, co-executive director of the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity. It's sometimes referred to as AC4. What is the Earth Institute and what is your role as co-executive director? So the the Earth Institute is a multidisciplinary institute at Columbia that works on complex global problems re regarding the sustainability of the Earth. And that's everything from addressing extreme poverty, looking at climate change, understanding and addressing climate change, and my area, which is uh, peace and sustainable peace. So I was invited to join the faculty of the Earth Institute, as you said, I think around 2008. And it was because they were working around the world, oftentimes in conflict zones and they wanted someone with a you know experience in understanding conflict dynamics because everything around sustainability is related to conflict and vice versa when you have you know war breakout then any kind of development initiatives that are happening shut down it leads to you know refugee spread it leads to displaced individuals families and other kinds of misery which lead to instability which increase conflict so there are all these vicious cycles so I was invited to join because of my area of expertise and have been on faculty there ever since. And then we we founded this consortium, we call it, which is the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, or AC4, which is this kind of multidisciplinary space where we bring people from very different disciplines, sometimes across the university and sometimes beyond, to study you know complex issues. So we study you know women's peace building, we study youth peace building, we study sustainable peace in general. In other words, peaceful societies that are able to do that for, for you know some decades or centuries and we study environment and peace. Those are the main, what we call signature projects of AC4. There's a lot there, and uh, I wish we had time to cover it all, but yeah. we'll do our best. Okay. Peter Coleman, your approach to conflict is a little different, but very interesting. It is one of accepting conflict resolution as a challenge rather than an avoidance. You determine constructive conflict engagement. Give us an idea of what constructive conflict engagement involves. Right. So one of the premise of my mentor, more Deutsch was that conflict, you know, people tend to believe or feel that conflict is a negative thing, is a bad thing, and try to avoid it because it makes many of us anxious. But the fact is conflict is just a given phenomenon in life. It, we can't make decisions without conflict within a, you know, between different choices within us. There's constant conflict in our relationships, in our groups, in our nations, societies, communities. So it's a pervasive part of life. He, he liked to equate it to sex and that it was kind of a fundamental component of learning and becoming more intimate. And the question was not whether we should have conflict or not. We need it. The question is, when does it go well and when does it go poorly? So that's what he spent his career studying, is the conditions under which conflict goes in positive direction or a negative direction. So conflict engagement is really, again, just how you respond to conflict when it happens. It is, in some ways, an opportunity to learn about yourself, to learn about other people, to learn about issues. Again, because it many of us respond with anxiety and tension, we can respond respond in more negative ways that escalate and, and tr trigger dynamics that are hard to walk back. If we could train ourselves to see conflict as an opportunity to learn or to discover or to be, or to innovate, which is, you know, which often happens through conflict, then we can take advantage of it and we can leverage it for our well-being and for the well-being of others.
the AC4 consortium works to enable and support integrative research and, and practice on sustainable peace, constructive conflict engagement, and, and sustainable development. It more specifically addresses the environment, peace, sustainability, women and peace, youth and peace, a wide spectrum of topics you've mentioned. What do the environment, women and youth have to do with sustainable peace, constructive conflict engagement and, and sustainable development? So all of these, as I mentioned, are part of our, what we call signature projects. So the need to understand women's role in keeping communities safe, in peace building, peacekeeping, peacemaking is critical because oftentimes they, throughout history, have been left out of that conversation, and they typically serve a central fundamental role in that. So uh, Lema Bowie, who a, is a Peace Prize uh, laureate, founded a program with us at AC4 on women, peace, and security, which was to take the role of local women peace builders seriously and to engage with them, to learn from them about how they do it effectively and how they can share their insights with other women around the world that are doing that work. That project has focused mostly in Africa and America. So we've looked at women peace builders on both continents, in, you know, uh, North America and uh, in Africa, just to learn from them what we can and to create spaces where they can learn from and teach each other. So they're, you know, fundamental to sustaining peace, but again, often neglected. Youth is a similar story. My colleague, Beth Fisher Yoshida, uh, directs a program on youth peace and security, and they too take the role of young people seriously in understanding how they can contribute to either mitigating violence or promoting more peaceful relations. That project is focused mostly in Colombia, the country, and mostly in the city of Medellin. Um, they've worked a, in a, a lot in the favelas, and they, again, work with local graffiti artists or sports figures or others that are working with youth in the community, trying to grow, you know, positive connections within the community as a way of mitigating violence. So they study that, they promote it, and they organize and facilitate for that. And then the environment, of course, is, as I alluded to earlier, is a critical component of peace. What we are seeing is, in, you know, as climate change affects extreme weather events like droughts, it creates a conditions where, for example, displaced people or refugees will flee a certain area because of the conditions to the land. This is one of the factors that contributed to the current war in Syria is that because of the drought, young people moved to the cities and, and were there were large numbers of young people in the cities and unemployed. And so during the what was called the Arab Spring, there were a lot of young people who were just felt disenfranchised and frustrated and contributed to some of the original mobilization and insurgents that took place there you know, which then, of course, was responded to by the government with force and and that led to, to some degree, some of the unraveling there. So the relationship between climate change, war and peace is critical and central to understand. And so Josh Fisher, who is the director of AC4, has projects around the world where he works with local stakeholders to understand environmental issues. For example, he works in Papua New Guinea with mining companies, local communities, and kind of human rights organizations to help understand the impact of those mines on local communities and to figure out ways to create arrangements that are less harmful for those local communities because of 
the violence that takes place in response to those conditions. So all of these are, are big issues, and they require that we bring together multidisciplinary teams to understand them, to think about them, to do work on them on the ground, and then to write about them uh, through academic venues. But they're all central components of what we call sustainable peace. And Dr. Coleman, uh, in your 2014 book, The 5% Finding Solutions, Seemingly Impossible Conflict, you say one in every 20 difficult conflicts end up grinding to a halt. This grinding to a halt you call the 5%. What is the 5%? And, and would you give us some examples on these problems and, and clues on, on how to resolve them? Yeah, sure. Uh, so just one correction, that book was published in 2011. Um, and it, it does focus on, it's called the 5%, and it focuses on those conflicts that happen, you know, in our families, that happen in our communities, and that happen on the international realm as, as well, that get stuck and that sort of persist for too long. So the, the term 5% comes from the study of international relations. There's a database called the Correlates of War database that looks at how nation states treated each other over a 200-year period. And what they've found is that, you know, the vast majority of conflicts between nations are resolved. They negotiate them, they come to, you know, they reach arrangements, treaties, contracts, negotiations, and are able to address those conflicts. But a small percentage of the more difficult interstate conflicts, approximately 5% of them, don't get resolved, get stuck. The relations between the states become more and more antagonistic. And that can go on 30, 40, 50 years or 100 years such as in the case of Israel-Palestine. So that's, those are the more extreme kind of pathological dynamics that we call the 5%. Again, these things can happen in, in families, right? You can have siblings that become estranged. They get stuck. They affect the whole family system, but they just can't figure out a way to work them out. So they're not just relegated to the international scene. They happen in many of our lives. And the 5% is just an estimate of those more complex, difficult, in deeply embedded conflicts that seem resistant to everybody's good faith attempt to work them out, right? Many times people just get fed up and want to just say enough, let's, you know, let's stop this, let's turn the corner. And they can't, for whatever reason, they keep getting sucked back into it. So that's the phenomenon that a team of ours put together a group about um, about 15 years ago to study systematically and to understand. And the 5% was one of the books that came out of that that project. Yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. Uh, for over 10 years now, you were the lead investigator on modeling the fundamental dynamics of intractable conflict. You've been described as an expert in the field of intractable conflict. You have said this sort of conflict undermines the security and, and well-being of society everywhere. Would you give us some examples of intractable conflict in the U.S. and what conflicts of this sort do you see in cultures and societies around the U.S.? And what about other countries? Sure. Well, again, as I said there, um, these types of conflicts have been, so Northern Ireland could be characterized as that the, the conflict over apartheid in South Africa for decades was, you know, one of these types of conflicts that went on and on for decades. But, you know, Israel-Palestine, the Congo, what's happening in Ethiopia, there, there are many examples of, you know, either disputes or conflicts that escalate and get trapped in dynamics that are, seem to have a life of their own. And despite the change in, changes in leadership, in policy, in attitudes, they still seem to persist. So they're, they're everywhere. And in the U.S., 
I think some of the more intractable issues here are around white supremacy and civil rights, which, you know, is part of our, our, our legacy as a nation. But I would also, you know, categorize the current political polarization that's happening in our country as a more intractable conflict, because by some measures, this is a 50-year pattern of increasingly divisive, vitriolic, contemptuous dynamics between Republicans and Democrats, more generally, but also within those parties, there are divisions, so splintering nationally, politically, and that is a, is a deep cultural phenomenon. It's not a simple, there are no simple causes of it and no simple solutions. Yeah. And so I, I see that as one of the more intractable conflicts of our time. So Peter Coleman, let's look at your latest book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization and the publication Behavioral Scientist, June 14, 2021. There's an article penned by Heather Garcia. In her article, she states, quote, toxic polarization feeds on simplicity. Peter Coleman, you offer complexity as a way out. Heather Garcia is referring to your latest book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. In response, you say, quote, I think political polarization is bad, is as bad as we think it is. Polarization is really high, which means we feel much more warmth, liking, and loyalty for our team, and much more of a sense of contempt for others. I'm assuming the word team here is referring to opposing political groups. So if you can define toxic polarization for us, what do you mean by overcoming it? Sure. So polarization in a nation like ours is not a bad thing. When you have a two-party system, mostly two-party system as we do, um, although we have a growing a group of in- independents, but most of them lean, lean you know, pr- progressive or conservative. Uh, but when you have a two-party system, you want to have some distance between them. You want them to challenge one another, to work as a kind of check and balance um, so that progressive don't go off too far too fast, uh, conservatives don't go off too far too fast, and they kind of keep each other and work in check. So polarization is a, is a, is a necessary and, a, and sometimes a healthy uh, component of d- democratic societies and certainly two-party, two-party systems like ours. Toxic polarization is different. And again, as I said, it depends on what you're measuring, but toxic polarization is when those two groups become so far apart that they, to some degree, stop communicating with each other. They stay. They start to communicate only within their sectors. And there are some really interesting images of, of Twitter conversations, how the red and the blue stop having contact across the divide and have most contact within their tribes. And then what happens is, you know, animosity builds up. So we've seen for 50 years now, increasing what we call affective polarization, which is feelings of contempt for the other side and warmth and love for your own side. We see an oversimplification of the world. So a kind of a collapse of our sense of nuance of highly complicated problems. Um, there's a Pew, the Pew Research Foundation puts out a uh, study, something called ideological consistency. What they do is they measure uh, 10 different issues and attitudes on those issues. And what they've seen is within Republican groups and Democratic groups is the attitudes on those issues become more and more correlated within groups and more and more opposing between groups. So in other words, we're not really thinking about different issues in nuanced ways. Gun control, immigration, healthcare, abortion. These are very different kinds of issues. 
and yet we start to hold our kind of tribal views, which are overly simplistic. So when that kind of simplicity takes over our thinking, our emotions, who we talk to, who we listen to on media, when there are those kinds of factors that start to oversimplify our world, then it is them and all of them are alike and us and we're victims of their insanity and that the issues are simple, right? You know, should we build a wall or not build a wall? It's simple. Well, to some degree, that's ridiculous, but it is psychologically what happens to us as a nation. And because of the media ecosystems that we exist in today, we live in today, there is almost parallel, there are these parallel realities. I refer to it as an American mass psychosis because you have one media ecosystem that feeds half the nation and another that feeds the other half. And there are different facts and truths and emphases and framing. And so you have these very different realities. An incident will happen and they're seen in fundamentally opposing ways. And so when it, there is that kind of simplistic view of the world and sense of us, them, the thing that does, one of the things that helps mitigate it most is that we, if we recognize the problem, we try to actively complicate our life. We try to actively seek out people on the other side who we disagree with, not anybody and not everybody, not a, the sort of more crazy extreme voices, but people that you think are, are reasonable and decent and trying to make sense of the world, but who have a different political opinion from you, that you try to find them, identify them, and then either listen to them or engage with them you know, respectfully. So we as a nation tend not to do that. It's more comfortable to stay in our tribes and to listen to the media that is more comforting to us. And what I'm suggesting is not that we embrace white supremacy or that we embrace extremes, but that we open ourselves up to different points of view. And that is increasing our own complexity and how we think and how we feel about those on the other side, that we recognize that if you're talking about half this country, you're talking about a lot of different people with a lot of different motives. They're not all the same. And so when we start to think that way and feel that way, that's the problem. And that's what leads to higher levels of escalation and violence like we saw on January 6th. So one of the solutions is, as you say, to, it's important to accept complexity and not necessarily understand it, but accept it and do what you call mixing of the preventatives. Somebody you may know who feels uh, uh, very differently about some, some political issues, don't set them out. You know, don't push them out. Uh, stay with it. And do you still get to uh, the political dis dis disagreements or issues or just ignore them altogether and, and stay friends? Well, that's a good question. It, it depends on your friendship. I mean, if you feel like you have a basis of friendship and respect that is sufficient to tolerate difference, then I suggest you, you try to talk about issues on which you differ. Sometimes, again, when you have cultural phenomenon like Donald Trump that really divide this country and that where there are deep passionate, passions um, driving those, those differences, it's very difficult to sort of sit down and have those conversations because it triggers in us a sense of rage and disgust. And, you know, so if, if that's the case, then I would say, you know, you're probably better off avoiding some topics if you want to maintain that relationship. But there are relationships where there's enough rapport and trust and history and friendship that 
can tolerate those conversations and can move people, you know, in different directions. Again, there's a, one of the questions is in a time like this, when you feel like there are people with bad intentions that are trying to, you know, harm America, trying to, well, then again, you want to be able to stand up for yourself and challenge those people. I'm not suggesting that we, you know, unify at all costs. What I am suggesting is that we find ways to disagree and to challenge one another that doesn't tip into vilifying them, seeing them all alike, and ultimately advocating for violence. And you know, too much of our population today support the idea that violence may be necessary in order to control them. There are more people, I think there's something like 60% of people over 65 believe that the members of the other party are a bigger threat to our country than external actors, than climate change, than the economy, right? We really see them as something that has to be fought and possibly with violence, that's a problem. That's what we see in nations that eventually turn to civil war. So we really have to bring the guardrails back on this, continue to disagree when we disagree, but find ways to do so that don't run out of control. Yeah, uh, other folks we've talked with, uh, one of the main things uh, we find consistently is the action of listening, giving that other person the respect to at least listen, not interrupt, uh, give them a chance, and then promote that in, in, in them, themselves so that we both have that exchange and, and rather than you know, just uh, not not willing to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's really important. I, I, I recognize that, again, under the current circumstances, that can be very hard to do. And I also want to say that to some degree, it depends on what your intention is when you listen. Because it, if your intention is to basically prove to the other party that they're wrong, that their leader's bad, that they're bad people, shame them, if that's your intention, then we listen a certain way. We listen for flaws in their logic and, and ways to come back at them. And that ultimately is problematic. That's why, you know, one of the things I recommend in my book is, you know, I say that there are today in America something like 7,000 bridge building groups in communities across the country. And I recommend that people, there's a website called the Bridging Divides Initiative that's out of Princeton that you can go to. And it's a map of America and you can click on your county or your city and it can tell you where there are these groups. And they help us sit down and in a safe and respectful way, have these conversations. But they also adjust our expectations. They don't say to us, ah, just get together and have a cup of coffee with the other side, you'll be fine, because that doesn't work today. Not if, it, not if the issue is Trump. What they say is, these are difficult conversations, they take time. If you're into it, if you wanna learn, then come in, these are the guidelines, we'll facilitate it, we'll create a safe space to allow people to have these conversations. Um, but you have to recognize that these things will take time and need to be facilitated. Eventually, people develop the kind of skills and feeling about how to have these conversations themselves. But oftentimes, we need to have it modeled for us because culturally, we're not used to this. Culturally, we move right into debate and politics and right into, I'm right, you're wrong, and let me show you why. And that just escalates things when these passions are so deep. You know, debate is one of those things that we don't take seriously, but if, if we learn it in an educational situation, you have to argue both sides. So you have to understand, you know, where the other side is going. And maybe that's one of the, the clues or the suggestions that we can make 
to try and do that, try to actually put those words into into the argument as the other person. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Let me let me say a couple of things about debate. So the problem that I have with debate is that you know I so I, I was trained as a debater in high school, and I you know, and we see debate when we see politicians, you know, debate, and when when we see political campaigns, and when we see our court system, you know, debate is is really a cultural phenomenon in America. But we oftentimes see it as a game. It is a game to win, right? It's about I'm going to challenge you and listen to you and then eventually weaponize whatever you say in order to win this argument. And again, that's a kind of a cognitive process that, it's a, that is a more closed and focused cognitive process. It is not a process typically about discovery and learning. What you described in taking different sides of an issue, and I would say even thinking in terms of both sides is problematic because immigration has multiple dimensions that, and there are not, no two sides of this, you know, there are 20 sides to immigration, depending on what we're talking, what aspect of it, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about economics, we're talking about morality, we're talking about, you know, the history of our country. There are so many factors in immigration. If you really unpack it, you really see that this is not, there are not a pro-con conversation here. So sometimes just thinking like that, realizing that these are highly complex sets of issues and that dialogue is a process. That's why I recommend people, you know, learn about dialogue and go to facilities that know how to facilitate dialogue, because that is a process where you basically share your story, where you came from, how you grew up, why an issue is important to you, what does it mean to you, but you're able to be heard and share and then listen to others and hear them. And in that, you learn things about yourself and you learn things about them and you learn things about the, these issues that you were not aware of. In debate, we oftentimes just put that away and we, we, you know, we try to sell our point of view. There is a process in my field called constructive controversy, which is something that's done in schools which is like what you described. It does suggest that groups get together, have a debate, but then they actually switch sides and then argue for the other side, and then ultimately come together and try to synthesize the best ideas of both of them. That is, I think, a way to learn and discover using something like constructive controversy, but it's not, it's not just debate. Debate is only the first step. Yeah, it sounds very Helgenian. Let's explore, uh, Peter Coleman, that uh, idea of complexity a little further. It probably is fair to say that some of us do not relish complexity as a way of solving the issue. You focus on a concept that recognizes complex methods as a way out of the polarization, negative polarization here. Widespread conflict or toxic polarization is where many of us find ourselves. So how do we convince ourselves and others to tackle this challenge in a way that helps us resolve the conflict and maybe come together with a more creative answer? Yeah, well, great question. So I dedicate this book. So there was a, there's a group called More in Common that does great survey research. And they've been studying polarization in America for a few years. And what they've identified is they said, look, there aren't just sort of two groups, but there are really what they call seven tribes. There are, you know, more moderate groups in the middle, some are disengaged, some are more engaged, and then you've got the extreme wings. I'm not, I did not write this book to talk to the extreme wings, because I think they're true believers and they're very difficult to break through. What I wrote it for was the 86% of Americans in the middle that are what they call the exhausted majority. 
there are so many of us that are just done with the nonsense in Washington, the vitriol, the screaming, you're a liar, the hate on media and social media, and the inability for our, of our politicians to come together and get real things done. Even when the country supports something like, you know, background checks on new gun purchases, 90% of Americans support that, they can't come together to pass that legislation. So we're, you know, there is a large group of us that are exhausted and fed up and really want something else. That's who I have focused this book on. Because what in, in the study of other types of societies, divided societies, that actually do pivot, right? That have come out of a civil war or come out of a deeply divided time and actually take a different course that's more constructive and more healthy. Most of those societies have a couple of conditions. One is that there are enough people that are miserable and that want to do something else. The second is that there's oftentimes some kind of destabilizing thing that causes people to pause and start to ask basic questions. Well, we have the Trump approach to the presidency, we have COVID-19, we have an economic downturn, we have an increase in awareness of racial injustice, all happening at once. We're highly destabilized right now. We've all been living at home for a year and a half, right? So this is a time for reflection. So we have enough people that are miserable and destabilized, but what they need is a clear sense of what to do. Like, what is the alternative? And that's why I wrote this book. What I try to do in this book is glean from scientific research of societies that have found their way out of these kinds of quagmires about the kinds of conditions and actions that you can do in your life or you can find in your community and your friend groups that can encourage you to find a way out of this trap that we're stuck in and start to behave and think and feel in a different way. That's what this book really focuses on. Okay. So, Dr. Coleman, you, you mentioned the Palestinian-Israeli complex as one of those that qualify as the 5%, a very difficult, complex situation. For our purposes here, we want to examine the 1993 Oslo Peace Accords because those accords began as negotiations between non-governmental officials. So, and the information for this question came from the home box office documentary, Oslo. In 1992, the Oslo Peace Accords began with negotiations between non-governmental negotiators facilitated by Monald Jula from the UN in Norway and other Norwegian diplomats. Norway was acting as a broker between Israel and Palestine. Negotiations began between Amman Quarry from Palestine. Quarry, as that time, was not a government official. In 1992, Yuri Hershield from Israel. Hershield was uh, an economics professor from the University of Haifa. The Israeli government official policy took the position that Israel would not negotiate with Palestine unless the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, recognized Israel's right to exist and recognized Israel's hegemony over land confiscated in the 1947 civil war between Israel and the Arabs, a position that Palestine refused to take. So the Israeli non-negotiation position explains why negotiations between began in Oslo, Norway, and why those negotiations began with non-government officials. Shimon Peres, Israel's prime minister in 1992, sent Yossi Berlin to participate in those negotiations. Berlin was not recognized as a government official at that time. Yisak Rubin was the Israeli prime minister in 1992. Yasser Arafat, PLO leader during the Oslo Peace Accords, 
the agreement hammered out by Uri, Yuri Hishi and Yasser Berlin was accepted by Simon Perez and then by Yasser Rabin and Yasser Arafat. Even though Rabin and Arafat received the Nobel Peace Prize for their part in the negotiations, the Oslo Accords was viewed as a failure by many because Palestinians and Israeli citizens did not buy into the terms of the agreement. The assassination of Yitzhak Rabin by Yigal Amir, an Israeli who opposed Rabin in the peace process, may have contributed to the failure, failure of the accords. So our question is here, should we attribute the Norwegian facilitators and the non-governmental negotiators because the principles of the Oslo Accords were accepted by Israel and PLO leadership? Or should we claim the entire process was flawed because the eventual failure of the Oslo Accords? No, I wouldn't see, I, I don't see it as a failure. I mean, I see, you know, again, this is an immensely complicated place that has been stuck for a long time. And so what was fascinating to me is when negotiations, peace processes are so constrained and you have such political will that is really, you know, antagonistic to these conversations, then oftentimes they go underground. And this is an example of this. And this happens all the time in diplomacy. There is oftentimes back-channel negotiations, back-channel communications, even with parties, you know, with the U.S. saying, well, we'll never talk to X. Well, there are conversations that happen. Some of them are informal, academics, but those channels are very important in, in fostering communication. So I think the, the Oslo Agreements is a, was a fantastic example of an attempt at doing that. I think the assassination of Rabin speaks to how powerful that actually was and how threatening it was. He was assassinated, as you know, by an Israeli extremist. So he was assassinated by a, a member of his own community, essentially. So it does speak to the, the power of that kind of initiative to really start to change the conversation around this. But of course, with the, in the aftermath of the assassination, it was seen as a terrible setback to the peace process, to the agreement as it was, and things fell apart. There were things about the process that were problematic in that it didn't, you know, having an agreement that doesn't involve so much of society does create what political scientists call spoilers. A lot of groups that are adamantly against that because they didn't have a voice in it. So that's one of the challenges often faced by peacemakers is how inclusive do you make a process? The more inclusive you can make it, the more likely that you can reach some kind of agreement that is sustainable. However, the more inclusive, the more parties you have, particularly in a context like the Middle East, the more difficult the process is, that you never get there. So these are, these are fundamental dilemmas that most negotiators face. There are no simple solutions to this. Some of it is timing. Some of it is the current conditions. I mean, some have suggested that since the Arab Spring and the, the tumult in the region, particularly in Syria, but other places as well, that this has provided a unique opportunity for Israel-Palestine to make real progress on their relationships. But under Netanyahu, we did not see that. And so, again, sometimes it's timing and opportunity and leadership that comes from surprising places like the Norwegians that come together that realize things that we didn't think were possible. Um, but again, I, I just want to emphasize that history is full of examples. In, in my book, The 5%, 
one of the cases we talk about is the case of Mozambique, an African nation that had been colonized by the Portuguese for hundreds of years, had an independence war, and then had a civil war that broke out immediately. And they were stuck for 16 years in this horrible civil war. But there was eventually some kind of really clandestine secret conversations that took place in the, in the bush, in the jungle, with certain members of certain parties that led to a peace agreement, which was surprising to everybody. And Today, there are other challenges in Mozambique, so it wasn't a completely sustainable solution. But these kinds of processes often are able to make a lot of headway and progress, these kinds of more informal, you know, what we call track one and a half or track two processes that are not government officials um, or indirectly connected to government officials. They can be very influential and, and effective when the conditions are right, but sometimes they're not. And in Israel, around the Oslo Accords, certainly the assassination of Rabin destabilized that process sufficiently. But yes, there were other flaws with it, but I wouldn't characterize it as a failure. I would characterize it as a process that didn't achieve most of its goals because the context was the context and the process was flawed. Okay, so you support non-governmental negotiations as a process that it sometimes does lead to, to peace talks that are effective. Uh, so my question is here, Dr. Coleman, first of all, have you been involved in conflict resolution as a government agent? No, I've never, no. never I mean, you know, I have consulted at times to the Justice Department around community relations and race and to some other actors that, that Congress right now is trying to deal with their own political polarization. There's a group called the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress that's chaired by a Republican and Democrat, and they're trying to address polarization. So I've had conversations with them to give them a sense of what I think they should and shouldn't do. So I'll act in an informal capacity like that. During the Biden transition, I was asked to write some briefs on the science of how do you depolarize a country like America and share that with the Biden administration. So there are times when I'm approached by government to offer evidence-based insights into what they're doing, but I've never hired by the government to work as a government official. So we here at Solutions to Violence, uh, we've had several negotiators, usually PhDs, in conflict resolution that appeared on our program, but they were not official U.S. government agents either. Yeah. So we wonder, how often do negotiations by non-governmental negotiators contribute talks that lead to peace? Is this a thing that, that has occurred a significant number of times? Well, yeah, again, I, I think you have to understand that oftentimes, particularly around some of the more difficult, long-term, intractable disputes, that there are multiple actors at work. And so in South Sudan today, which is the youngest country in the world, there has been an ongoing war. There are peace there's a peace process that's happening right now. A lot of it is back channel through religious organizations, some support from the Vatican, a group called the Community of San Egidio. And they're, again, working quietly to try to bring the negotiators or the representatives of the different groups together in conversation in safe uh, spaces in order to try to get to a point where they can more formally announce and recognize what's happening. That kind of work happens all the time. And again, some of it comes from the bottom up, which means comes from non-governmental organizations. One of the ones that I'm familiar with is this group called the Community of San Egidio. And they're a Roman Catholic group started, I think, 30 years ago by a bunch of young people. And mostly their mandate is to help the poor, right? Their mandate is to go into nations where there is extreme poverty and do everything they can to help the poor and marginalized. 
organized. But because they're oftentimes there in conflict zones, they're trusted because they don't, they're not big power wielders. They're not going to throw the power balance off in negotiations, but they're tr trusted individuals. They're oftentimes turned to, to say, is there a way that you can start to bring a couple of us together in conversation? And they quietly do that when invited to and try to encourage and support contact. And through that, you start to see in places around the world, like South Sudan today, pro progress. Sometimes that progress leads to formal negotiations and leads to peace processes, as it did in Mozambique. Sometimes it doesn't. So there are, again, a lot of factors that shape that. But these actors are critical, particularly in places that are so violent, so constrained that you can't admit to speaking to somebody on the other side without your side killing you, right? That's how Yasser Arafat felt. If he made the Camp David, signed the Camp David peace treaty and started to implement it, he would be dead in a week, right? So there were reasons why they feel very constrained and why they look to other actors that are less constrained to have conversations that they can't have. That's really very interesting because the number of people that we have interviewed, there are many of them who are private organizations and it's always been a confusing thing to me that they can be effective and whereas uh, recognized governmental organizations cannot uh, get in to do what they've been able to do. It's true. And I think it's true with the UN as well. The UN, in many ways, is highly constrained. The UN's mandate is to try to prevent war and conflict between nations. They don't really have a mandate to work in, you know, in, in civil conflicts within nations. And so even when their envoys or their mediators are sent there, they are usually not as effective as the kind of local NGOs that are there, living there, that are staffed by members of their own community that have deep insight into the local political and cultural opportunities and constraints. Those are the actors that oftentimes can have the most progress towards peace. They can be supported by the UN, they can be supported by regional organizations and nation states. Ideally, eventually they are, but the, the initiation of that stuff is oftentimes best affected by local actors. Yeah, the local actors, to me, seem like it would be more in more danger, but it actually works the other way. <laughs> yeah, well, again, to me, it, yeah, they're, I mean, they're all, to some degree, in danger. The international actors usually have security around them, although I have an interesting story about that. So George Mitchell, who was a U.S. senator and brokered the Good Friday Agreements in Northern Ireland and, uh, and elsewhere, if you go to Northern Ireland, they speak about George Mitchell with many accolades because one of the things that was interesting is that Mitchell Mitchell was there for about two years. He, he almost gave up a couple of times, but he said he just, he, he couldn't look at the face of Irish children and, and leave them. So he stayed there for a couple of years and he stayed in a hotel, I think it's called the Euro Hotel, Euro something hotel, which is one of the most bombed hotels in the world, right? It was a place yeah. targeted all the time. And what they say is during the time that he was there, like the mid 90s, it was a time when any diplomat came there were usually snipers on all the roofs and security contingents around them because, you know, one side or the other was interested in taking somebody out. Mitchell had none of that. Mitchell got up every morning, left his hotel room, walked and got a cup of coffee, took the bus, was allowed to roam independently. Now, first of all, that takes a ton of courage, right? But it also speaks to the fact that there was all sides invested a lot of hope in what and promise in what he could do, which was bring an end to the troubles or to violence, bombing. So it's, you know, again, it's an extraordinary 
necessary role to play. He was an interloper in that he was really representing in some ways the Clinton administration. He was their envoy at that time, but he was respected by all and therefore allowed to you know, do what he was able to do there. Of this grassroots organization, uh, it's an action group called Hands Across the Hills. Uh, we, we had the pleasure of in, in interviewing uh, Paula Green. Uh, she's the organizer of this group. They uh, combined residents from hometowns of Everett, Massachusetts, and Letcher County, Kentucky. They organize exchange visits and bring citizens from Leverett and Letcher County together, face-to-face discussions, and especially in the wake of the 2016 U.S. election. In, in addition to those face-to-face sessions, they experience each other the community, family life, through potluck meals and music excursions uh, around the, the home areas, engaging communities that would typically be antagonistic to each other because of their political agents, hands across the hills, have melted away stereotypes so that we can see each other's human face. This would be, I'm assuming, one of the things that you, you are suggesting as a preventative notion. Are there other examples that you can you can share with us? Yeah, so um, absolutely. So I, I am fond of those types of initiatives. I have to say that they work, to me, my sense is, in terms of impact, they work best as a preventative. So when there are such extreme divisions, such as today, bringing people together temporarily for a couple of days for a conversation can have some effect and may plant some seeds in people in terms of how they view the other and what their attitudes are. But because there are so many other forces that pull us apart when they get, go back home in their families, in their communities, they're drawn back into this kind of simplistic thinking, either us, them thinking. So, you know, what I think is necessary is having the kinds of conditions where those kinds of interactions are common, right? So let me give you one example that I talk about in my book. Um, Botswana is an African nation, right? And Botswana became independent, you know, post-colonial about the same time as Angola and Mozambique, which both pretty quickly broke out into ethnic war. So there were all these tribal groups that were together that didn't like each other. Suddenly, the constraints of the colonial powers were gone, and there were, and war broke out. So when Botswana achieved independence, they were worried that they too had ethnic groups that didn't like each other, and that they would start to compete against each other, and it would eventually turn into ethnic war. So what they did was they basically introduced a process for all Botswanans that continues to day, which is an attempt to do what that organization that you just referred to um, does on a temporary basis, but attempted to do it all the time. So what they do is all civil servants, which are you know teachers and engineers and doctors and lawyers um, that work for the government, um, every seven years, they're required to relocate to a different part of the country. So if I grew up with my ethnic tribe, seven years into my career, I got to move and live for seven years with another group. And seven years after that, I got to move again. And it's really interesting because it's not always a popular policy because you got to move, right? But it is one of the most peaceful, one of the most economically thriving nations in Africa. When you look at some of the other groups, some of the other nations like Mozambique and Angola and others, um, South Africa, where you have these tribal divisions that are still deep and simmering. But this need to go and move and live with different people and 
and you know bring your skills there, but bring your person there and be affected by them. That is what this group, Hands Across the Hills, is trying to do. But it's a structural thing that they do intentionally nationally. Singapore did the same thing. Singapore, in the founding of Singapore, they had come out of a period of terrible ethnic strife. And so their policy was that housing had to be ethnically integrated. And that meant that kids grew up together and had to go to school together across ethnic divisions. And so even though Singapore has other problems, like it's highly punitive nation, um, and it was a very autocratic approach to this, it still has one of the highest rankings in what we call social harmony, intergroup ethnic harmony um, in the world. And part of that is because they, you know, they basically forced members of different ethnic groups to grow up together and know each other. And it's much more difficult to vilify an entire group when you live next door to them. Yeah, the Singapore solution begs the question here in Jefferson County, Louisville, Kentucky, concerning the Jefferson County public school system and the fact that it has over the years gradually moved away from integration back to segregation. The new policy is that African-American students who bore the brunt of the integration effort now are allowed to remain in their home reside if they choose to. So that will desegregate the Jefferson County public school system. So yeah, we're, we're wondering how that experiment is going to work out. But yeah, you make a good, great point there. So in, in his book, Peter Coleman, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, Jonathan Rauch argues the following. Refuting bad ideas can be invigorating, empowering, and deeply rewarding. Every time yeah, you've got the book, every time I hear from a minority rights advocate say that he or she should not have to debate haters who question his or her very right to exist. I say, on the contrary, that's exactly what you need to debate. Win the argument, criticize instead of canceling. What do you have to say to to Rauch about his approach to disagreements, avoiding hard debatable topics, conversations, confrontation. Yeah, so again, uh, my premise is that you should always ask yourself as you enter any conversation across differences like that, what is my intention? And if my intention is to set the record straight, to challenge some you know, erroneous assumptions on the other side, to try to make a case for the public, if that's my intention, then I completely agree with Jonathan Rauch. I think that that is a worthwhile and necessary thing we need to do. If my intention is to enhance a relationship, understand someone else's perspective, maybe start to reflect in my own ambivalence about my position on some issues. If that's my intention, then this is the wrong kind of conversation. This, again, is equates to our earlier point of the difference between pure debate and dialogue. And it's very difficult to do both at the same time because, because debate is, a, again, a confrontational, critical, in some ways, game. And what he's arguing is that right. You should go on Fox News and you should challenge Tucker Carlson to the assumption that he's making at any point in time and and do your best to challenge it, deconstruct it in a reasonable way, right? There's value in that. But that's because Tucker Carlson is doing his shtick and he's trying to bring you on to suck you into that. And if you can fight that fight effectively, then I say go for it. If you're trying to understand his audience and trying to understand what is it about this that's drawing them and you're trying to build relationships with them, then that's not going to get you very far, right? They're both necessary processes in our society today. Fighting the fight, challenging untruths, challenging hyperbole, challenging hostile rhetoric, I think is a 
it's a fundamental thing we have that we have to continue that fight. And that's what Rauch is arguing for. What I'm arguing for in this is that we also have to create a different capacity to have some compassion and understanding that they're not all alike and that there are folks that we can build relationships with and come to understand and we can grow this moderate middle. The objective of my book is different from his, but in some ways I say in my opening, we need them both. The society needs them both, but there's so much more of the fight and there's so much more energy for the fight right now and so little energy for listening and understanding and compassion that that's why I wrote my book. But we're getting close to being out of time for our broadcast today. Uh, would you share some recommendations to our listeners of reading and media sources you, you follow up and, and final any final thoughts that you have for our audience? Sure. So, yeah. I, so the, the book, The Way Out, has a website called The Way Out. It's thewayoutofpolarization.com. And on that, we have exercises associated with the book. We have resources from elsewhere. There's a lot of media and blogs that I've written, and those usually have have links to the research that's behind the positions that I'm taking. So there's a lot of information there that's a portal for a lot of information relevant to this. I guess the takeaway message I want to leave your audience with is that despite what we see on the news, some news, despite what we see on Twitter, Facebook, or social media, and and recognizing that most of the content on social media is put out by 10% of people that are on it. So the, the extreme voices are controlling the story. It is really important important to understand that most Americans are not like this. Most Americans are fed up, want to move on, want to figure out a way to get along, to agree to disagree or to disagree respectfully. That's where most people are. To me, that's a hopeful message that there are many Americans that are doing that. And what I try to do in this book is offer some ideas for how to do that in your life. We are out of time for our Solutions to Violent Conversation today. Our guest today is for Peter Coleman. Thank you, Dr. Coleman, for sharing with our listeners your experience and insights and exploring more Solutions to Violence. Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. Coleman will be placed in our archives July 7th. To listen to this and other programs, go to our website at forwardradio.org. Use program archives and scroll down to Solutions to Violence program that features Dr. Peter Coleman. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and inspire are you? Visit us at forwardradio.org. As your host today, we are Jamie McMillan and Jim Johnson. And from all of us and our guest, Dr. Coleman, we say thank you for exploring and discovering with us more solutions to violence.